1979, Myron Maltz concluded that the termination of fellowship with the Missouri Synod by the Wisconsin Synod was inevitable. The final days of the Synod's shared history were plagued by continuous areas of disagreement in matters of church practice. To make matters worse, each Synod viewed its course of action to be proper and in accord with the truth of God's Word. George Gouda is undoubtedly correct in saying that what destroyed the Synodical Conference was the uncertainty within the Wisconsin and Norwegian Synods regarding the direction of the Missouri Synod. This is A Word Fitly Spoken. I'm your host, Zelwyn Heidi, back again with Adam Kuntz and talking with Dr. Mark Brown about the breakup of the Synodical Conference and the issues that were kind of leading up to that and also the fallout and in the years to come. So before we get into that, gentlemen, how are you doing? Great. Thank you for having me again. Very, very well. It's good to be back. Yeah, no, this this should be a pretty good episode. I mean, the first one, I think, was pretty well received, and we want to finish out the story because we really only got about halfway through your book, Mark. And okay. I think maybe the, the best place to start, for the sake of our listeners, would just be to start talking about one of the issues that we kind of danced around, but we didn't actually get to in the previous segment, which I would encourage new listeners to go back and listen to. And that issue is the issue of Holy Scripture. What was happening in the Missouri Synod? How was Wisconsin reacting to it? And, and just kind of what was, what was going on in those days? So, Mark? Yeah, well, this is maybe the hardest part of the process for me was to figure out how did the doctrine of the Word play? Uh, what, what role did it play? Did it really play a role or not? And I think a little bit of my own sense of this is maybe helpful. I graduated from college in 1974, and I was at the Wisconsin Synod's College in Watertown, and every week we followed what was happening in St. Louis. Of course, we'd all get free subscriptions to Christian News, but it was also on the national news about the walkout and the, mar- the strike going off campus and the possibility of the you know, complete fall of Concordia Seminary. And so it's only understandable that we, people my age, came into our seminary years thinking, that the doctrine of the word was a key issue here. I mean, I was nine years old when the break actually came, and that was about fellowship. And so we all talked about that. And then in my senior year at seminary, my church history professor, Edward Frederick, he started out his lecture on what he called the Great Debate with Missouri. And the first thing he said was, gentlemen, this the break was not about the doctrine of the word. It was about the doctrine of fellowship. And that's what you know the resolution said, and that's what the minutes of the meeting say. Okay, so then fast forward 14 years after that, I'm at Concordia Graduate School, and Wayne Schmidt was a director of graduate studies who had been an old Wisconsin Synod guy, been in the Wisconsin for many years before he went to St. Louis after Concordia was trying to put itself back together. And I told him what Professor Frederick had said, that this was not about about the doctrine of the word, it was about fellowship. Dr. Schmidt said, I love Professor Frederick. When I was a ninth grader, he taught me religion at Winnebago Lutheran Academy, and it pains me, <laughs> and it pains me to say this, but he's wrong. It was, it was, it was also about about the doctrine of the word. So this confused me even more. So then, fast forward to 1999, and I had a an open session on the, at the college, which the PR people put in the newspaper. We had a couple hundred people there, including a whole bunch of members of the Silflow family and other Missourians interested in this. And I got to talking about this, and one of the one of the events that always made Wisconsin talk about the change in Missouri, the doctrine of the word, was the appearance of the Charlemagne Papers. Martin Charlemagne, about 1956, 1958 or so, it gave four separate papers publicly in which he said in one way or another that the Bible is true, but not without error. And that kind of mm. opened up the lid for what was going on in Missouri about this. And And at seminary, I had one professor who used to teach at Concordia River Forest. His name was Sigbert Becker, and he never trusted Charlemagne. In fact, even though Martin Charlemagne ultimately withdrew those papers and to some degree apologized for them, Becker never believed him. And Becker used to say to us in class, that Charlemagne, he was a charlatan. <laughs> so so that night at that meeting, I, I, said, I told that story. And this man who I, I didn't recognize 
raised his hand and said he would like to address that. And he said, I was Martin Charlemagne's pastor on his deathbed, and I believe his confession was sincere. Turns out that person was Karl Barth. I think he's still alive in Milwaukee area. He was district president. Then he became president of Concordia at the time when they were putting it back together. So I was, you know, really all over the map on this. How am I going to talk about this? And then one of the old Wisconsin guys who was already quite ill, he was there that night. He could just kind of speak in a rasp. And it was almost like a godfather moment. He said to me, call me tomorrow. So I called him at his house. And in about 15 minutes, he clarified the whole thing. And I would say in a nutshell, there were many Wisconsin synod pastors who were becoming nervous about things they were hearing about Concordia St. Louis, while at the same uh-huh. time hearing reassurances from Missouri leadership that nothing was changing. A high number of those men, some of whom have talked with me and they want me to protect their name and reputation, but they have said to me, I did not vote to break with Missouri over the doctrine of fellowship. I never bought the unit concept of fellowship. I just went about my ministry in the way that I should. But it was the fear of what was going to happen with the doctrine of the word that made me wonder, where is St. Louis going? Huh. It wasn't the presenting issue, but it was kind of the issue under the table. And once he explained it to me that way, then I could write chapter five, almost like a, a parallel story, because I start there going back to the 1920s when Missouri was getting a little nervous about what Michael Roy was saying about inerrancy in the old Iowa Synod, I guess. How, as a result of that, the ALC always had some voices that were a little bit less than fully clear about the doctrine of the word and inerrancy. And it wasn't so much that what they said was wrong, but that they didn't say enough that you could sure they they were on the same page. And then Wisconsin began to feel in the late 1940s and early 1950s that Missouri was saying the same thing. Its statement on scripture, for example, looking at the common confession, thought they said it was inadequate because it really doesn't settle the differences. And then you have Charlemagne making his, his paper. And then after the break, you have Richard Junkunz, who had taught in Wisconsin, write in a paper in Concordia Theological Monthly and say that the passage that says scripture cannot be broken does not indicate that scripture is inerrant. And then at the same time, Martin Marty is telling a story in Christian Century about a meeting that was called of pastors in Missouri after the 1959 convention, and Banken, President Banken was there. And at that meeting also, a couple of scholars had said that John 10.35 does not prove inerrancy. And Banken stood up and said, if that passage doesn't prove inerrancy, what passage does? And the, and the professor said, there aren't any. So so you start adding these things together, and Wisconsin people were saying, we just don't know where this is going to go. And and then we continued hearing stories like this until the walkout. And when the walkout happened, there was no sense of relief or, or schadenfreude on the part of any Wisconsin person I've talked to. There was just deep sadness. How did this come to this? You know, we looked yeah, up to Missouri sure. as the big sister who could kind of help us fight some of our battles and even fight some of them for us, kind of. And what has happened here? Why do you think, Mark, because I think this is something that came up in the last episode, it comes up whenever we're talking about Lutheran history, anything we've discussed in this podcast. Why do you think so often we do not discuss what may actually be the most salient issues? Is it is it too painful or are we running on suspicions? Because obviously, I think, you know, in hindsight, the issue of the doctrine of inerrancy was certainly the one that became huge in the Missouri Synod. Well, I could say for one thing, most pastors that I know, after they have a few years of experience under their belt, they're not going to go looking for trouble. I mean, a few, a few of them actually <laughs> right. not only look for right. more trouble they create it, and that's a different breed. But, you know, we, when we go to pastors' conferences <laughs> right. and we, you know, people bring up things that they're concerned about. And most pastors that I know have the, the common sense to not make these things issues when they get back to their, their parish. They don't walk in and say to their secretary, guess what we talked about? There was a reluctance in the long for a long time for Wisconsin to talk about the issues that were bothering them in the 1930s and 40s or to limit them to their theolo- to our theological journal or to only talk about them in the Gemeindeblatt, the German magazine, which hardly anybody could read anymore. We also, <laughs> we also recognized that, the, that, that being against scouting and trying to explain prayer fellowship was not easy. 
and would we, we, we couldn't say for sure yeah. how people would react to it in our own church body. And, and I know that from my own experience. I did a talk one night at an area congregation about my dissertation before it was done and talked about the whole break because of fellowship. And one woman came up was a mother of a student at the high school age, at our high school, and she said, I am so ashamed and embarrassed that this is what we broke fellowship for. This is absolutely terrible to treat other Christians this way. And I would pull my daughter out of Wisconsin Lutheran High School today, except she's not going to be able to sing in the choir, or if she stays in the choir, she can't sing in any Wells churches. And I think there were a lot of, so there was a difficult time in the late 1940s and 1950s to try to explain the reasons to the church membership. And the pastors were not all on the same page. Some were in the thick of it and have been studying this for years, and others wanted to keep peace. Now, I think the difference with the doctrine of the word, and actually Jacob Price even said this, he said, to tell people that we're going to break up the synodical conference over whether you can pray with your grandma or not is not going to fly well. But when we tell people that the liberals in Missouri are saying Adam and Eve weren't real people and that creation actually didn't happen and the flood is just a local myth, they're going to react to things like that. And he was proved to be exactly right. And as Wisconsin got nervous enough to say, we just don't know what's going to happen to the doctrine of the word, maybe we'll avoid our own internal problems by drawing a line here, as Missouri seemed to move more in that direction, so that by the late 1960s, you're getting a pretty a growing sense of an organized counterforce of conservatives that are going to start to fight this back. Then lay people looked at this and said, well, you know, we don't believe that about the Bible, do we? And I used to hear this one one story, one of those, you know, preacher's anecdotes where a man had borrowed a Bible from his pastor and it had all these, you know, whole sections ripped out and pages cut out. And he said, well, you know, we always go back to our seminary professors and they tell us which parts of the Bible aren't true anymore. We keep, I keep coming home and cutting all those parts out. And now I don't have hardly anything left to believe. Now, that kind of a story really hits people close to home. Can you talk a little bit about what happened with Martin Charlemagne in the early 60s? Because I think that's a good example of something implicit or generally unspoken, eventually becoming explicit with the walkout in 1974, which I think more people know about. But what happened with Charlemagne, you know, years before? This is an interesting history, too, and I wouldn't begin to claim that I've got all the facets of it. But this professor that we had at our seminary who had been at River Forest, his name was Sigrid Becker, and he used to talk about, we almost joke about it, he'd talk about the unholy trinity. Missouri. He would complain about them, Martin Charlemagne, Jaroslav Pelican, and Martin Marty. And what really bothered him and other conservatives about all three of them was that they were young. Charlemagne wasn't quite so young. The other two were young and brilliant, but taking the liberal side and being a little bit, how should I say this, smart-alecky about it. I mean, I, I have come to have, a, I think, a, a really helpful relationship with Martin Marty. He's in his 90s now unfailingly helpful as a graduate director and stuff, but but he could zing people. And, and so he maybe made some enemies he didn't realize. And so we would hear about them, that they were so young and gifted and maybe the best that, you know, the Saint, the Missouri Senate education program could produce. And then they all turned in this direction. Mm -hmm. So he would talk about this, this Charlemagne's papers. And one of them he gave at Old St. Paul's Church in Chicago. It was a pastoral conference paper. Becker was at River Forest, so he actually was sitting in the pews listening to Charlemagne give this paper. And we have his copy of the paper in our sliding file at Mechlin with all of his notes and question marks and exclamation points in the margins. That alone is, is a lesson. So, you know, Charlemagne said these things, that the Bible is true, but it may contain historical errors. And of course, this is what, this is the approach that people have denied inerrancy, have taken to different church bodies for decades. And that opened it up. Well, then what happened at the 1959 convention is that the conservatives in Missouri attempted to pass a res and did pass a resolution that every theologian in Missouri Senate must subscribe unalterably to the brief statement of 1932, which then pushed a back backlash in 1962, where they essentially rescinded that. And as I understand it, at that at that convention, Charlemagne withdrew his papers, but his language in some people's minds was a bit unclear, but he remained at St. Louis, and I think he was—he had the qualities that a lot of good professors have, where they really 
create a sense of loyalty to them with a lot of their students. But what was surprising to me was how did this guy that we heard these things about in the 1950s, how did he end up being in the conservative camp by the 1970s? At that St. Louis looked at him as one of the ones that was the stalwarts and he didn't walk out with the rest. So I asked a couple of people at St. Louis when I was in grad school, and they said, well, here's sort of the colloquial story that goes, is that Charlemagne was not only a theology professor, he was a military chaplain. I think he rose to rank of colonel. And he was somewhat sympathetic to some of the concerns of the people who walked out at St. Louis until he saw many of them walking around with clergy collars and army fatigue jackets on. And that just made him livid, because not only was he were they hmm. confusing hmm. You know, this theological issue with all kinds of anti-war stuff and all that, but that they were wearing the army fatigue jacket, which is also often the dirtiest, grubbiest looking military uniform. And he loved being in the military. And you can go back and look at pictures of how students from the walkout walked across Concordia Park, you know, in front of the seminary, crossed Dumont Street, and then went to this little park and they all stood there like an anti-war rally with their, their collars and their, and their jackets on, but they cut, cut it short because they didn't want to miss lunch in the cafeteria. So they, all had to go back. <laughs> and from that, that would have been, what, 74. That until when Charlemagne died in the early 90s, he apparently had a great distaste for the whole movement. So he was one of the people who really put St. Louis back together again and stayed around. And so when I went to grad school there in the 90s, I think I had two or three professors that had been among students who had not walked out. And Charlemagne was their, their leader. And so a person like hmm. my professor, Dr. Becker, he knew that Charlemagne had gone through a kind of a, a rehabilitation, but he never believed it. <laughs> and, he, and, he said, and, he, and he said so. <laughs> Would you connect then Missouri's turn to something that we talked about last time, which was the greater degree to which Missouri was integrated into American yeah. national life? Was there an equivalent to, you know, sort of our, our hippie seminary students? within the Wisconsin Synod in the 60s and 70s? I think it's more of a case of who was the actress that played the flying nun and all that. When she finally won an Oscar, she stands in front of them and she says, you like me, you really like me. <laughs> and, and, you know, you can really trace this in the history of the American Lutheran Publicity Bureau. The founders of that wanted to pull Missouri out of its heavily German immigrant, backward kind of life as they saw it and pull them into the 20th century. Richard Johnson's new summary of this, he's, it's, it's a wonderful resource, but like I said, I think I, I said last time, it's a, like a giant resource about the Civil War with only the North. It really, I mean, so he, he paints people like Theodore Grebner as really judicious and heroic and paints the people in the Confessional Lutheran Policy Bureau as being, you know, crabbed and difficult, which is just what his source material says, so that's not surprising. Right. But, you know, what they came to highlight, and then there was this kind of good cop, bad cop thing where Grebner wrote for the American Lutheran and was more open, but then wrote for, was editor of the Lutheran Witness, but was more sympathetic to the American Lutheran approach. And he would, they would tell stories when they would go to conferences with ALC and other Lutherans, and the ALC Lutherans would, mar uh, would remark, well, you're not, you know, you're not isolationist anymore. You're some of the most outgoing people, you know, that are coming here. You are very forward-looking. And they would trumpet those stories. And of course, then they felt like the Norwegian Lutherans and, and the Wisconsin Center were kind of a drag on this because they were not coming out, out of that isolationism in the same way. And what the American Lutheran magazine tended to do was to not publish many articles written by conservatives in Missouri or the Norwegian Synod, but they would publish articles by other clergymen in the ALC with whom they were technically not in fellowship, but by publishing those and Seeing to, seeming to be in agreement, they were almost saying that there's sort of a, a de facto fellowship we have with them that's greater than what we really have with our own synodical conference members. So that change, that tide bit by bit, there, there is that sense that Missouri was saying, we're part of the mainstream now, you really like us. And Wisconsin, Wisconsin reacted. I remember there was, I think the Synod Convention, Wisconsin Synod Convention, like in maybe 1947, was in New Ulm. You know, New Ulm's a pretty small town in central Minnesota. So they sent a reporter, and he covered the whole convention. And he wrote up an article for it in a New Ulm paper saying what a great convention it was, how organized, and how much it was about business, and, you know, really was interesting to watch. And one of the people in the Wisconsin Senate wrote back and said, 
we could care less what you think about our conference. We aren't doing this to try to win the, the approval of the outside world. We're trying to do this because we think it's the right thing to do, preach the gospel, and the chips will fall where they want to. I mean, they'd just given him a great compliment. They didn't know how to say thank you. <laughs> and, and then the Wisconsin Center was celebrating its 100th anniversary by having a big joint service at the auditorium in downtown Milwaukee. And the pastors were generally advised, don't advertise this outside of your churches. And this was picked up that by the American Lutheran. They said, no wonder the Wisconsin Synod is so small and doesn't grow. They hide all the gifts they have under a bushel. I think that was the phrase they used. And, you know, there's a reason why they're so small. And so I think this is when a time is growing that Wisconsin was seeing it as a badge of honor that they were, you know, sticking to the tried and true. And even if it didn't win them any friends, whereas Missouri was, I think, getting greatly desirous for any kind of publicity that said, hey, you guys are all right. You know, all the chaplains that they met in World War II and these chaplains, you know, Methodists and Baptists and Catholics would say, wow, I had a whole wrong opinion about you guys. There was a very funny illustration in, I think it is anyway, in one of the ALC's magazines, where he compared the Synodical Conference to the Soviet Union. And he said, Russia Russia is, you know, the Missouri Synod. They kind of say which way the tail should wag. And then all these other little synods are like the Eastern Bloc, you know, like Poland and that. They just kowtow to the <laughs> to the to Mother Russia. <laughs> and I'm sure Missouri was saying, not anymore. You know, don't don't use that picture anymore. Well, on, on that very colorful note, we need to go to our first break. So we'll be right back with more Word Fitly Spoken. The Word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. The Word of God is the center of our faith life. Join us every Thursday for a new podcast available on iTunes and your favorite podcasting app. Follow us on Twitter at WordFitly. Check us out on Facebook, facebook.com slash WordFitly. And check out our website, wordfitlyspoken.org. We thank you for listening and stay tuned for more Word Fitly Spoken. We are back. Zelwyn Heidi, Adam Kuntz, and Dr. Mark Brown talking about the breakup of the Synodical Conference. So in the previous section, uh, we had heard about the issues regarding the word that was kind of form, uh, fomenting within Missouri and how that affected Wisconsin. But now we want to focus on the actual timeline, the actual final years of the Synodical Conference, the breakup itself. So I know that everything had been bubbling up to this point and it was kind of beginning, it was just about ready to boil over, but we get to the first Wisconsin Synod convention where this became a live issue. Mark, do you want to, you want to talk about that? I agree with you that getting the timeline straight really makes all the difference. As a fairly young man, I used to, we have a, a dinner, a lunch get together once a month for pastors of various, you know, our, our pastors, but of various ages. And I would listen to some of these old Wisconsin pastors talk about these conventions and they would just, all they have to do is name a number, you know, like 55 and they'd all talk, you know, and I couldn't figure, <laughs> I, 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 I couldn't figure this out until I finally made six binders and put everything together year by year so that there was always a convention acting and then waiting for the response of the other. So Wisconsin met every odd year in convention, still does. Missouri by and large meant ever, met every third year. So sometimes our conferences or conventions would coincide. And then the Synodical Conference met every even-numbered year, and the Synodical Conference was numbered by size with representative size. So the Missouri delegates always outnumbered the others. And so that was, that was sure. a dynamic, too. So by the 19, by, let's say by 1950 or so, generally speaking, everybody realized things aren't going to change. The issues that we have are kind of pretty much set now, they would call more conferences and give more papers. And there weren't too many people convincing the other side. 
And uh, what Wisconsin was all also noticing was that among their own pastoral ranks, there was not complete unanimity either. There were differences regionally and probably some personalities that were involved. So in 1952, there's a synodical conference convention. The Wisconsin delegates declare themselves in a state of confession in statu confessionis. In 1953, then the entire Synod Wisconsin Synod Convention approved of that and basically adopted that position. And that's that position roughly means, yeah, we're still married, but we're separated. I mean, there, there are real significant mm. differences. But because of the long history, we're not going to go to court. So all eyes were on the 54 Synodical Conference Convention, which by everybody's account was ugly. Wisconsin and the Norwegian Lutheran Church body, the Synod, had an opening service at one location, and Missouri and the Slavic Church had a an opening devotion church service at another church. So here you are hmm. celebrating their working together by hardly being able to talk to each other. There was block voting. There was shouting down speakers, Jeez. no matter which side you are. The CHIQ has an article about this in the 90s, and it, it tells really how very sad it was. So that led to the vote in 1955. 1955, Wisconsin meets in convention. And what they do, which is, I think, significant to understand the CLC story, is this, the convention agrees that the Missouri Synod is a perpetually erring doctrine using about church body using their particular language of Romans 16. But they decide by a split vote that they will not actually declare fellowship to be broken until Missouri gets to meet the next year. Now, there was a growing number of pastors in the Wisconsin Synod that said, well, you really shouldn't do that. You can't say about other issues that I'm convinced from Scripture but I'm going to stop doing this sin a year from now, right? I mean, I mean, I, I've been in the parish ministry for a right. long time, but I sympathize with pastors having to deal with the, you know, the apostle queue on unmarried people living together because, you know, what kind of repentance is? Is it a couple says, well, we realize that what you're saying is right, and so we're going to move, you know, not move apart though because we got the hall and the band and everything next summer. That's a real repentance issue, and that's what they said, but they were still kind of unhappy about it. Wisconsin President Nauman, some people regard him as not quite as much of a hardliner as President Brenner was, although I think that's really not very accurate, actually. But Nauman exercised great patience. He thought he saw some movement, you know, back to conservatism in the 56 convention in Missouri. So Wisconsin meets in 57, but the resolution of the floor committee is to break, and that resolution failed by 16 votes. So it, it was after hmm. that, in 57, that these people in Wisconsin, who were really becoming more and more concerned about where Wisconsin was going to go on this, began to find each other and would meet in locations, and they had different conferences. But the, technically, the organizational date of the, of the founding of the CLC is 1960. And what, what does CLC stand for, for the sake of our listeners? Church of the Lutheran Confession. Now, I, I got to add a, a little addendum onto that to understand the history. So in 19, what happened in early 1960 was that Wisconsin formulated the fellowship differences into this picture. Do you see fellowship as a single thing, a unit that either you are in fellowship or not, and every act together like praying or worship or communion, is, is, all of those are acts of fellowship? Or do you see fellowship like steps up a ladder where the more in agreement you are, the more you do together? Mm -hmm. And the representatives of Missouri said, we see it like a ladder, and the representatives of Wisconsin said we see it like a unit, although there are some parts of it that were razor close, in my view. But this was a special synodical conference convention in early in May of 1960. They declared an impasse. So then all that was really left to do was that the um, Wisconsin Senate would vote in convention in 61 on this, and then they voted to, to break. The vote was 124 to something, and it was not a ma massive majority, and there was eight hours of discussion, and they cut off numerous speakers and tried to limit hmm. the time. It was pretty emotional. So even at that, it wasn't a slam dunk by any means. Mm -hmm. So then, after we break with Missouri, then the thought was, well, if if the CLC broke with Missouri earlier, and now we've broken, can't we get back together again? And a lot of people caricature the relationship with Missouri, uh, Wisconsin and the CLC by saying, well, they're mad at us because we wouldn't break when they broke. And so they want us to repent for not breaking when they did. That's really not the issue. <laughs> the issue is how Romans 16 is interpreted. Can you mark someone as a persistently erring fellow Christian and yet postpone 
breaking fellowship with them because the CLC would say, now you're relying too much on human interpretation and judgment. And Wisconsin mm-hmm. essentially said, well, you kind of have to, don't you? <laughs> because you can't read hearts. So you're, so that's been really the difficulty all the time. And we, we hope that the CLC and Wisconsin will come to a different place. The CLC reviewed my book for about 12 pages of review, (laughs) and they didn't like most of it, but then they ended up saying, but you ought to buy this because it's pretty complete. But uh, the other issues, I think the CLC is declining in size so much. I think they have a lot of members who frankly don't know what the fight was about. Right. And what what often happens in those situations is you kind of get the pastor that, you know, took you out of the synod for the rest of his working life. And so sometimes pastors stay places 20, 30, 40 years, and then they die or retire. And people say, well, really, what was this fight about? Now, the CLC still has its own college and seminary, so they continue to have new young pastors. But their membership membership numbers are really going down, so I don't know what their future holds. Are they in talks with the Wisconsin Synod today? Yeah, we've we've had talks periodically between the seminary faculties from almost the beginning. And they wow. are routinely reported on. Sometimes they had taken a break of two or three years. But in the end, we seem to come to the same cul-de-sacs, so to speak, where we just can't get through. Okay. So we, you have this convention, it, it narrowly fails. And then you said in the following one, didn't it fail again? Or did I get that timeline wrong? In, in fi- Well, no. In, in 55, there was a disagreement between the convention committee, the ad hoc committee, and the Standing Committee on Union, which involved basically like the CTCR that involved professors okay. and seminary, the ad hoc committee wanted to vote to break fellowship. And the CTCR, or the, the Standing Committee, urged them not to do that. And they talked late. You know, at this time, these committees would, would arrive at the convention site three and four days before the convention was to start and would meet morning, afternoon, and night and talk with each other. And because the Standing Committee said this, they brought a divided report to the 55 convention. Ah, and and, okay. and so what happened was that the, the, the resolution finally got to be, uh, the majority resolution was we will declare the Missouri Senate to be an erring body, but give them time to react to, to this report. The minority opposed that. So that was really, in a way, it was kind of a preemptive first vote. But then 57 was the first time it came to a full vote, and then it was dropped, and then 61 was the concluding one. Then the Synodical Conference met in 62 in Wisconsin, and the Norwegian Synod, I think, just didn't send representatives. And then they left hmm. Then they left okay. in 63. By this time, Missouri is joining Lacusa, or whatever it was, the, pre, the body before Lacusa. So we were really in different places by that time. We have talked a couple times about Missouri being unaware of Wisconsin or, or in some cases, dismissive. Who was representing Missouri in these late stage synodical conference meetings, surely somebody who's more aware of or sympathetic to Wisconsin's concerns, right? Well, that is a painful story. And part of what I did to write this was I, I did a, a survey of over 100 pastors who had lived through this. And it was remarkable what I got from them. I mean, a very high compliance rate. Hmm. They sent me six and eight and 10 page, page letters, some of them handwritten sent me the mimeograph stuff that they had made to present this case to their own pastors. One of them said to me, you have stirred memories in me I haven't thought about for 35 years. And so this really told the other side of this this part of the story. And a number of them all told the same story. Martin Fransman, the Fransman family grew up in the Wisconsin Synod in a church in Minnesota along the Mississippi. And and Martin taught Greek at our Northwestern College for years and years. And in 1946, he took a call to St. Louis when that was somewhat common to people to be called back and forth. And then as the 40s turned into the 50s, he got more aligned on Missouri's side, although it was clear that he was not in favor of some of the directions on the Doctrine of the Word that some of his colleagues were. When I talked to people from all spectrums, all the way over to Missouri pastors who have gone to the ELCA, they all say Martin Frostman was the great healer, the great kind of, not compromiser, but the person they all looked up to. So hmm. Missouri kept sending Martin Fransman to the Wisconsin Synod Conventions. And of course, he'd come back to these, these, these schools that he had been at, and he would plead for more time and say, Missouri is still sorting this out, and please don't abandon us in our hour of need. 
So what Wisconsin did in 1961 is they made his brother Werner the chairman of the floor committee on fellowship. So you have hmm. in the gymnasium, you have the two microphones, one on one side, one on the other. Martin is at one mar- microphone begging us not to break. And Fra- Werner, his brother, is at the other one saying, the long road of patience is ended. We must take more firm steps today. And they just said, these guys said, this just broke our hearts to watch this. And I got, and I got a survey back from, from Gerhard Franzman, who was another brother. And it was also a teacher. He's in Wisconsin. I had him for, you know, classical history and all that. And he, he wrote a very moving. He just said, they're both brothers. I love them both. It was the most terrible thing I've ever watched. And I got the sense that Martin Franzman stayed in Missouri, but you know, he wasn't real happy with what was happening there. And I had an interview with, with a Wisconsin pastor who got a call to Springfield in 1960. And he went there and visited with Robert Price, I think. And then he went to St. Louis to see Franzman because Franzman was an old family friend. And because also Franzman at that time, the seminary faculty in St. Louis had written a statement on scripture, which again was kind of soft. We thought his name was Pastor Schaefer, Jim Schaefer. He said to Franzman, what is this statement? You know, what do you think of this statement that the faculty has approved about the doctrine of scripture? And he said, Franzman looked at him and says, all you get from the faculty is a wall of mush. That was his phrase. <laughs> well, he did. He did have a way with words. He did. Yeah, he did. So, but, but you know, Martin, Martin didn't stay uh, uh, for a real long time in, in Missouri. And then he went to Britain and he was at Cambridge House. And he, I guess, that's the story is that he developed a rather rapid case of dementia onset and died when he was still in his 60s. Huh. My dissertation father, Ron Feuerhahn, was actually, I guess, the pastor in, at the church in Britain and knew him. Yeah, that's right. Dying. And so uh, some of our people like to say that they thought they knew Martin all the way along. They said, we, we think Martin kind of died as much of a broken heart as anything, that this happened mm. This happened to both of his synods, you know. Mm. Mm. So he was a representative, and were there any others that are that are notable for uh, for posterity's sake that, that were trying to reconcile with Wisconsin? You know, you have the voice of the Confessional Lutheran Publicity Bureau, which is very similar, although not nearly as... I mean, the Christian news grew out of the Confessional Lutheran Publicity Bureau, but they were not anywhere near uh, the personal attacks and, you know, all these other subjects that Christian news would get into. Sure. There's a wonderful d- dissertation actually done in the subject of rhetoric at the University of Wisconsin that compared how the two sides structured their presentations and their writing. And the American Lutheran put itself out to be very positive, modern, would not name a critics by name. And the Confessional Lutheran was like, you know, get the facts down, get the names, get, you know, I mean, they really relied yeah. on all the of this kind of newspaper-like information, which probably, you know, right. like we say today in politics, it probably played to the base pretty well, but probably didn't change too many people's minds. Yep. So, you know, there were, there were in Missouri, it was as we found out by the early 1970s, there were a lot of conservative people in the Missouri yet. And, and so they were kind of the silent majority at this time. But I don't think their mindset was as much to, I mean, they wanted to preserve the fellowship, but they wanted to straighten out. It was still their civil war. And they wanted to see, yeah, they wanted right. to see more of the people like Charlemagne either really change their mind, repent, or, or go where they belong better. In Wisconsin, you know, there certainly were people that had long memories of friendships with Missouri and they would ask for patience. And there were some Wisconsin pastors that left for Missouri when the break came also. There was kind of a, a shuffling of the deck, so to speak, after that. And then when the split came, then there were people in Missouri who came forward and said how they would miss the support of Wisconsin. And, well, it sounded a little hollow because, <laughs> you know, we'd been there all along. And I think in the end, there. so then there was the beginning of some free conferences in the 1960s in which like-minded conservatives from Missouri and all these other churches met. And it was still outside the framework of fellowship by that point. They would give papers, but not, you know, not pray together. And in some parts of the country that caused, well, I think that was part of the movement in Missouri to kind of stand their ground. And I think it created a lot of new mission churches in parts of the United States that were really Wisconsin, you know, new Wisconsin churches made up of quite a few former Missouri Synod members. Yeah, I have in my own, in my own area, we have a Wisconsin Synod church that came from a Missouri Synod congregation that was actually in the midst of votes to leave the synod during the middle of the 1970s, and a Wisconsin synod church formed out of that congregation that was voting. So I, I know at, at least anecdotally that 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 happened. 
Do you hear any stories from them about how the whole change went? Is it pretty comfortable? I don't. I know that they had the only Lutheran pioneers chapter in the state of Pennsylvania. <laughs> I don't know if that's if that's still the case. But, is, that, uh, is that in King of Prussia? No, that's the one in Harrisburg okay. in, in the middle okay. of the state. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm just sitting over here with hardly any Wisconsin Synod churches, period. But <laughs> Well, yeah, you know, we, we would talk about that because in the pages of the Northwestern Lutheran, they would always have new openings for new missions. And in the middle 1960s, suddenly there were these cities all over the country that we had never been in. And they were often being started by a nucleus of people who was leaving the Missouri church. And I've talked to a lot of pastors that have been in these churches because quite a few of them were a little older than me or even my age who went to one of these churches. And they said, you know, there's an old saying that a burnt dog doesn't just stay away from a hot stove, it stays away from every stove. And, you know, when change came in these Missouri-turned-Wisconsin churches, some of them would say, yeah, anytime there was a new idea, someone would say, that's how Missouri went. You know, the pre- <laughs> you know the, pre- yeah. the preacher's going to wear an alb instead of a black gown. They're going to have banners in the church. I mean, the NIV, using anything but the king was a horrendous battle. That's what happened okay. with Missouri. And some of these churches were the last to embrace a different Bible translation, the last to accept a new catechism or a hymnal. And so that was kind of a, a mixed blessing in some places that that happened. I think you had a lot of that kind of testimony in Christian news, too. People would come to Wisconsin and then not be happy with Wisconsin either. Well, on that note, since we're going to be talking about some of the fallout of this breakup in the next segment, we should go into our last break. So we'll be right back with more Word Fitly Spoken. All scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. Visit our website, wordfitlyspoken.org. There you'll find new articles each week on the Bible and other topics. You can also join us on Facebook at WordFitlyPosting. That's WordFitlyPosting with a P to discuss anything you've read or heard. Thank you for listening. We'll be right back with more WordFitly Spoken. You are listening to A Word Fitly Spoken. It's Ellen Heidi, Adam Kuntz, and Dr. Mark Brown talking about the breakup of the Synodical Conference. So in the previous section, we had talked about the actual timeline of the last years of the Synodical Conference, but since Missouri and Wisconsin have kind of gone their separate ways since the 60s, we thought it might be fitting to talk about you know, what kind of things Wisconsin has been doing and the kind of things that you've struggled with as a a synod, things that you've done well as a synod, just to kind of help our listeners have a better understanding of where Wisconsin has gone following the breakup and the, the kind of how she reacted to it and all of that. So, Mark, go ahead and, and dig right in. Okay, well, this will probably be a little bit idiosyncratic because on the one hand, there are certainly things about this I don't know a lot about, but on the other hand, this is what I really lived through. So these are somewhat my own reflections sure. on this, I would say. Sure. There certainly was a lot of concern among Wisconsin Synod clergy and maybe some members. What are we going to do without Missouri? What's life going to be like? And maybe the most interesting part of the book to me, or let's say the survey with pastors, is I asked them some kind of question about what 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 good has come out of this. I don't. Maybe I didn't even say good. Well, how, how has Wisconsin been affected since 1961? And almost to a man, they said. We grew in ways that we had never anticipated. And I always liked the line of one pastor who said that breaking with Missouri was the, the same feeling we had was when you're a kid trying to learn how to swim and someone takes the little swimmies off your arms and you realize you can swim by yourself. I thought that was such a descriptive <laughs> picture. Part of this was that it also so happened that we went through a giant baby boom in the 1960s. The post World War, these I was one of these kids. You were you were born in late forties or early fifties, and so you were just coming to the 
prep school college age in the 1960s, right after the break. And all of our synodical school systems had record enrollments and massive building programs that coincided, I think, with a pretty good economy, maybe partly through the Vietnam War. I don't know that, but I mean, I was in the class of 1978 from uh, seminary, and not only do we live with this slogan, every state by 78, but my class was the biggest class that the seminary graduated. It was about 63 or 64. And our classes today are a third of that size. And they were a third of that size in the 1950s and 60s sometimes. This was the case everywhere for our teachers. We were opening more schools. So we were simply growing because we had the numbers in a way that we had never grown before. You mentioned that slogan, Every State by 78. Can you explain what that was and kind of unpack that for our listeners? Well, in 1961, when we broke fellowship with Missouri, we were in 16 states. And we were, by anybody's definition, a regional church. I don't, I don't know the numbers exactly, but we have three Wisconsin districts and one Missouri, uh, Michigan district, one Minnesota district. I mean, that is a giant percentage of the, of the synodical membership and still is. But what had been happening, as I think I mentioned last segment, is that there were groups of Missourians all over the country who were coming to the Wisconsin Synod circuit pastor or mission developer in their area and saying, we want to talk with you about starting a church because we just don't know where Missouri is going and we're unhappy. And so there were these really weren't so much. Some of them were planned openings by mission boards, but a lot of them were responses to kind of Macedonian calls, come over and help us. So we were mm-hmm. growing in states that we had never been before. And these old gentlemen's agreements between Wisconsin and Missouri, I think I mentioned the one where they said, well, you'll take Arizona, we'll take California. All bets were off now. One of the fastest growing churches that we had was in Garden Grove, California in the early 1960s. And so mm-hmm. we were we were growing into these places. And, you know, for guys going through seminary in the early 1970s, it wasn't just a case of where you could go to the same parish your great-grandfather had been at in northern Wisconsin. You could also go to Southern California or Texas or Florida or Hawaii. And so there was much more of this breadth than there had ever been. There was also a hugely growing world mission program. And I think I have to give special credit to Oscar Nauman, who was Wisconsin's president from 53 to 1969. So his tenure bridged both the uh, years when the theological differences were causing it to break up and also the time of aggressive mission expansion. And I think it's very unlikely for one man to be expert at both of them, to really be able to be a, provide leadership in both those kinds of settings. And he did that. Mm-hmm. He was a, I happened to go to school with his youngest son, so I knew him personally, remarkably evangelical man. He could be stalwart about doctrine, but not in a nasty way. He would just be patient. And, and yet he had this great interest in working in Africa and going to Japan. So we were really becoming a, a world church body, even though still our numbers are so concentrated in the upper Midwest. Idiosyncratic is great, especially in, in an interview. <laughs> the 70s in the Wisconsin Synod. So the 70s in the Missouri Synod are a traumatic time. And I think culturally, if you just look at the movies that came out of Hollywood in the 70s, also kind of traumatic, dark, but you're giving us a picture which is literally sunnier. You know, you can go to the Sun Belt now. Is it, are the 70s remembered as an optimistic time for Wisconsin? Yeah, they are. And I think there's a lot of good sides to that. And I think there's been a, again, this is idiosyncratic, a little bit of a back, a backlash against that. But when we were, when I was at seminary in the 70s, we got the sense that, that the guys who came out of the seminary in the 60s, and I got that more so by getting to know some of them, that when they came out, it was a time of optimism, but it was also a time of a little bit of uncertainty. You see that there were conversations. I've gotten into the seminary, some of the seminary faculty minutes, and the faculty expresses concern that some students aren't always going to know how to handle sometimes complicated issues in congregations when they've just had an internal split or something. I talked to one pastor who said, who graduated in 65, he said, you have no idea how we reacted to this. We were so scared of doing the wrong thing that we would just not talk to a Missouri pastor ever about anything. You know, is being nice, is being, is being nice to the person a sign of some kind of tacit fellowship, you know? Right. And, and I right. can, I can look back at that from my vantage point and say, come on, you know, I mean, you can talk together, you can be friends, you can play softball together. But you go back to that time and you'll read mail 
you know, going between pastors and to district officers, and you'll see study papers that say this. We're going to ask all kinds of questions because Wisconsin had always been so almost hermetically sealed into the synodical conference world. But then as you got out of the 60s to the 70s, there was more of this sense of optimism. And so every state by 78 was simply one expression of this. But we were encouraged. I I think the, the group of seminary faculty that we had, there was a core, as I recall, of younger, somewhat innovative men who encouraged different styles of preaching and were not opposed to having an alternative form of worship and who wanted okay. us to try aggressive forms of, of evangelism. Some of it was a little goofy sometimes and, <laughs> and, sure. and you know, sort of amateurish. But, you know, you, you go back through the pages of our magazine, Northwestern Lutheran, and you will see articles where you know, innovative ways of doing things happen. And there has been a, I would call it a backlash of a much more intense liturgical consciousness in the Wisconsin Synod. And I like a lot of it. And some of it makes me uncomfortable. When did that backlash take place or begin? You know, you know, I, th- I think in some ways, even backlash is, is a little bit strong. But I think I, I've written a long study paper on this, and the person about whom it, it, it is written, it, because he becomes the main figure, says he's uncomfortable. I think he kind of likes it. The, 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 the paper is called the, um, <laughs> the, the his paper is called the Black Geneva Piety of the Wisconsin Synod. Boiled down versions in Legion years ago, and I could I could get you a copy. But the change in the culture from saying you know wear a black gown, don't show off, just cover yourself up, white is too showy, to accepting it and accepting more of the liturgical practice. I would say it's the hinge that this all swings on is the man who's taught liturgics for more than 30 years at our seminary, James Tiefel. Uh-huh. And, and you know, I think there are a lot of SEM graduates that come out and or endorse things that he wouldn't have necessarily endorsed, but he has and had a high view of, of church music and of liturgy. Many pastors embrace that, but I think the generation that came out optimistic in the 60s and 70s is not as fully convinced, you know, and so you okay. hear yeah. these rumblings. And, and my whole paper about the Black Geneva piety talks about how the change came kind of piece by piece and how there is a certain segment that are never going to be bought over. Now, I, I would say that we have never experienced the intensity of any worship wars like I understand have, have happened in Missouri. In uh-huh. fact, sure. I think in a very general way, you can say, Whatever you see happening in Wisconsin, if there are disagreements and if there are even maybe sides forming and a person says, I think I'm going to try the Missouri Synod, I would say, well, multiply by six, you know, because it's just going to be more intense. I think, <laughs> I mean, am I right? I get the sense that the sides are more hardened. There's, you know, the sides publish more and that makes a difference. We also obviously don't know each other to the same degree that I, I think one element of continuity that the listeners should be aware of is that whereas the system of theological education that prevailed in both Wisconsin and Missouri kind of dies in Missouri after the walkout in 74, yeah. such that the time that you that pastors spend together, which used to extend from the equivalent of seventh grade up through the end of seminary, is now in the Missouri Synod generally just seminary, generally. Yeah, that's right. And I talked about that with some of my professors at St. Louis when I was in grad school, and I got a real mixed set of answers about many more second career people and people who have not had you know, the old classic Missouri-Wisconsin seminary background. In fact, right. one of them was lamenting the loss of the languages and the classical system. And I, I recited just on the spot, I don't know how I remembered this, the first two lines of the uh, in Arma Warumka Kanotro, yeah, what is that, the beginning of the Odyssey? I, see, I can't even remember what. Yeah, the Aeneid. Yeah, yeah the Aeneid, I, I, I yeah. can't even remember what piece it was. And I nearly brought uh, the professor to tears. You know, somebody had the classical system. <laughs> what is what is the percentage of Missouri pastors that are pastors' kids? Probably about 3 4%. A statistic that I do know is that the, the class from which Zelwin and I graduated from the seminary, Zelwin, would you say that a majority of us are converts to Lutheranism? Yeah, I think that's, I mean, I mean, you're dealing even within, you know, the usual crowd here. I mean, you have at least three who are converts to Lutheranism, so. That's a development that has just never happened in Wisconsin. Wisconsin always had its one college. And I mean, since 1892, it's one college and one seminary. And the classes were, you know, 20, 25, 30, maybe. So these guys knew each other in an intense way. 
for a dozen years. And what we never really had to do, or maybe we should have done it sometimes, but we never really came to see it as a need, was to have sort of an intense psychological evaluation of people because everybody knew everybody. <laughs> right, <laughs> right. Yeah, and that's, that's going to affect how you deal with each other. Now, that's going to mean that in some cases the dysfunctions get institutionalized, and that's not good. <laughs> but, but I remember talking with a professor from Gettysburg, and she said, you know, the first-year students come in, we just take them all in. And they can do their first year studies and we see how they do. And then all the testing starts second year. Those that are look like they're going to stay. And they really have to get to know these people. Uh-huh. Wisconsin had one college and one seminary. Now, what we had also had was one college in Minnesota, which was all educational stuff, all liberal arts for uh, elementary education. Mm-hmm. And so a fairly disruptive episode was in 1993 when those two colleges, the College in Watertown for pre-seminary, and the education college amalgamated to become one college. Hmm. And all the pre-seminary students went to New Orleans. That was a much more divisive issue than I think anybody would have predicted it being. And I think the biggest reason was is that the traditionalists who thought it would never happen, in my view, came to the Senate convention unprepared, and they were voted down. Hmm. And, and so we've got the kind of unusual situation that you know our main college for the church body for the Wisconsin Senate is in central Minnesota. And once you get to know the history, you find this out. And that was a tense change. And there was almost two, well, I mean, there really were essentially two separate catalogs and curricula on campus. That has greatly improved. And what that has done, you still have, I think, the camaraderie of the pre-SEM guys, Mm -hmm. but they also get to know a lot of the education people personally when they're in college. Mm -hmm, And I'm sure it facilitates dating and all of that stuff. But I will, I will say that, you know, as a 67 year old man, I can, I could go to pastoral conference almost anywhere here and have talked to people from five different generations. And the degree of unanimity and shared experiences is remarkable. Sure. Yeah. Surely there are are generational differences and we can kind of notice them, but it's a real fraternity in the, I think a lot of the best senses of the term. Yeah. But again, I I think that system can kind of institutionalize certain peculiarities and kind of a, a lack of outwardness sometimes. So we, we talk about that, but you still, you, you know, you look at the graduating class and you just recognize name after name. Yeah. This is so-and-so's grandson. This is, you know, I mean, yeah. really, and you're talking about 50, 60% or more of a some graduating class that when in doubt, you guess maybe that they aren't a pastor's kid or relative, and, and then they are. So that creates a, you know, a high amount of insiderness, maybe a slowness to change, but sometimes the most innovative people are the three, four, five, six generation Wells clergy family. Now, I know one of the things that we had mentioned, at least in the break, one of the issues that Wisconsin has struggled with, perhaps as part of this, you know, intense inward looking kind of thing is issues like a Bible translation and all that whole controversy. Do you want to talk about that? Yeah, the Wisconsin Senate was was in favor of new Bible translations almost from the beginning. I suppose the impetus was when the RSV came out and well, I guess there was an earlier RSV about 1901 and then 1951-52. The RSV was published, and Wisconsin never particularly liked it because of some of the things that it did to some of the Messianic passages, as I recall, especially uh, Psalm 8 and Isaiah Isaiah 7. Mm-hmm. But the RSV and now really the ESV have always kind of had the, maybe not official approval, but have always been widely accepted in Missouri and, and not so in Wisconsin. So there were Suddenly, more passages about the the Virgin passage, the Alma passage. We we were, for one thing, we were involved with the Beck translation when it became a larger project. The Beck translation, which became an American translation, and then they were working on revisions. And my professor Sigbert Becker had actually come to the aid of Herman Ott when he was trying to process his false doctrine charge against Concordia in the fifties, and so there was already a connection. And Becker became involved in the American Translation Project, and he kind of promoted it. And they also took our professor, David Kuski, who's a, a very intense New Testament exegete. So there was a lot of support for the Beck Bible and for an American translation. Mm-hmm. And then that became God's Word. And my president here at our college was on the God's Word board for a while. There was that element. Beck had called his translation Coffee and Donuts. And it was not a literary kind of a translation. But then there was this group in Chicago that ended up becoming the founding group for the NIV. 
And their interest was to have a truly world English translation, not idiosyncratically, you know, British or American or whatever. Mm -hmm. And we had one professor, Bloomy, who'd gotten his degree in Chicago. He knew of them, and he was involved in their New Testament work enough that they respected his scholarship. And then one of my Old Testament professors, John Jeske, was on the Old Testament team. He was on there several times in summers for the years that I was at seminary, so he would come and talk about that. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, you know, the NIV has its issues with too many things being a little bit too Calvinistic, and but in its effort to be a worldwide translation, I think there was some of that. Now, some of our professors were invited and showed up for the changes in NIV 2011. What we are repeatedly told is that you guys get good language skills. Now, of course, we're sending them our all-stars, not the you know, the guy got a D in Greek one semester like I did, but they, but they're sending, we're sending them the all-stars for our church body, but they, they really know their languages in the classical traditional style, and every student has to get through this mm-hmm. in that style. Mm-hmm. But what they'll say to us is, we don't know you guys. You never come to conferences where we're at, and your teaching schedule, you guys teach so much, you just are not going to have, you know, the time to be involved here. Right. Now, we have a retired professor, John Brug, who has written extensively about many things, and he has an unbelievably facile memory. But since his retirement, he is putting together the Evangelical Heritage Version. And while he's got New Testament people, he's, he's an Old Testament person, but he could be either one. He, you know, he's got a number of pastors in both both Old and New Testament that are kind of consultants. And so I've been working on judges for forever, it seems like. So, we, we, you know, I gave my translation we talked about. But this is pretty much a one-man production, I would say. I mean, he's huh. got a a board okay. of directors, and they have contact. But I mean, I think he's ultimately most of the editorial committee. And his knowledge of languages and culture is really remarkable. And there is a website for it, and he must have 50 or 60 articles about translating on it. This is his hobby now that he's retired. <laughs> and, and, yeah. he, and he has put out, they have put out the New Testament and Psalms, which you can get from on Amazon. But he's also put together the lectionary for the three-year three cycle. And I go to church after church, and I see the notation that this readings are from the EHV, I think. It's, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. It is a user-friendly translation. It's less wooden than the NIV. It is not as you know colloquial as the Living Bible or something. It seems to be a real comfortable translation. This was not a popular decision for him to do this because most of the leading administrators and language people said, if you want to put together a committee for the Little Wisconsin Synod to do an entire Bible translation, you're going to pull every language person out of our college and seminary and essentially cripple the next generation of pastors. And hmm. so Dr. Brug just said, okay, I'll just do this myself, <laughs> which, <laughs> which he is essentially doing with – see, the thing is he can – you know, he and I can text the judge's text back and forth, and we can I, – I wrote notes for him for a potential EHV study Bible on judges. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But there's no meetings. There's no cost to much of this. We just, you know, at worst right. have to do a conference call huh. or just do it electronically. And he just keeps rolling along. <laughs> yeah, I've read it with my children, and even the four-year-old can understand it, I think, a little better than the ESV, which is what we usually yeah. use. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. And I think all that people like Dr. Brug and others like him when they debated this is, we just want to be sure that we have a voice in this process. They would regularly come, the faculty, summary faculty would regularly come with two or three pages of suggestions with reasons for passages in the NIV. And some of them, they got adopted, but many Mm -hmm. others they didn't. And they felt the same way about the Beck Bible. Becker said to us in class one day, we will get a much better hearing among the Beck translators than we'll ever get with the NIV people. And, you know, these guys are both on the same faculty here at Mequon, and they probably each kind of presented their project favorably. Well, this is what the people today are saying. We just want to have a voice in this, that we're in the marketplace on this. And so that's, I mean, we have always been in favor of that in our, I think some of our most difficult struggles when we still have King James only people in congregations that are good givers or longstanding members, and they really fight this and make it into a doctrinal issue. So often their, you know, their, their rationale is obviously the result of people who don't have language training in this. And, sure. Yep. Well, we're running out of time. So, Adam, do you have any uh, final comments? No, I just wanted to thank Dr. Brown for his patience with our questions and also his vast knowledge. I, I have really enjoyed recording these two episodes. Well, thank you for having me. I just want to say that I've gone generally just as an observer, but I had a role a couple times in these ongoing 
meetings between Missouri, Wisconsin, and ELS pastors. They've been usually in the Minnesota, West Wisconsin area. They are outside of fellowship. We get to know each other. And what I'm seeing, since this was the experience I had as a grad student, I got to know individual Missouri people, professors and pastors, one-on-one, seeing them, got to talk about this. And what I saw was this happening on 50 different ways at the same time. And, you know, even if we can never in fellowship be brothers, because I think we're kind of using the term cousins, I think we're finding out that we have great, really, we're finding out that we have great allies in the other church body and people who accept each other. And both President Harrison and President Schrader are kind of amateur musicians, I'm told. And at one of these evenings, one of these times we were together at night, there was a time when the two of them had dinner together, they were laughing together, and then they played some music together just for fun. And I thought, when was the last time this might ever have happened? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I right, mean, even exactly. the two Peeper brothers were brothers and they couldn't seem to get along. So, yep. so I mean, yep. <laughs> I, th- I think the question of can we resolve these differences about prayer fellowship and the ministry, which are complicated issues, but if we can no longer think of the, the each other like we think of Missouri as those liberals and Missouri thinks of us as those, you know, fundamentalists or whatever, and get we're past that so much now. And that's a great blessing. And I think we really, I really hope we try to cultivate that on every level that we can and still not give a confusing witness. Thank you. And this might be our small contribution towards facilitating that, but we hope that it it proves fruitful in the years ahead. Yeah, thank you. I, I do too. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Brown. Glad having you on. Adam, as always, thank you for being on with us. This has been A Word Fitly Spoken. If you like what you heard, you can check us out at wordfitlyspoken.org, on facebook.com slash wordfitly, or on Twitter at wordfitly. I'm Zelwyn Heidi with Adam Koontz and Mark Brown. God love you, and God bless. The estrangement of the Wisconsin Evangelical Lutheran Synod from the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod, once her sister in Midwestern American Lutheranism, is now more than four decades old. As time goes by, fewer and fewer members of the Wells will recall or cherish the fellowship, despite the bitterness in parting, that once was ours with Missouri. One who did remember, and who rose above that bitterness, wrote in 1971, Many of us have not forgotten our days of brotherhood, when we worshipped in each other's churches, preached in each other's pulpits, held joint mission festivals and reformation rallies, and sang together at Sanger Fests.